Part 2, Chapter 1 of Farewell Love, a novel by Matilde Sorau. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jen Broda. 1. Anna wore a pink dressing gown of soft wool with a low-cut sailor's collar and monk's sleeves, so that her throat and wrists, round and pale, with the warm pallor of ivory, were left uncovered. Her hair was drawn up in a rich mass on the top of her head and confined by two or three pins of yellow tortoise shell. Her black eyes were radiant with youth and love. She opened the door of her room. She had a little clock in the case of blue velvet lightly ornamented with silver. Cesare had given it to her during their honeymoon and she always kept it by her. She looked at this and saw that it was already eleven. The April sunshine poured merrily into the room, brightening the light colors of the upholsteries, touching with fire her bronze jewel case, her hanging lamp of ancient Venetian wrought iron, and the silver frame of her looking-glass, and giving life to the blue forget-me-nots on the white ground of her carpet. It was eleven, and from the other end of the apartment, where with Stella Martini she occupied two or three rooms— Laura had sent to ask at what hour they were to start for the Campo de Marte. Anna had told the servant to answer that they would start soon after noon and that she was getting ready. For a moment, she stood in the middle of her room, undecided whether or not to move in the direction that her feet seemed inclined to take of their own will, pretty little feet in black slippers embroidered with pearls. Then she opened the door. A short passage separated her room from her husband's. Her husband's room had a second door, letting into a small hall, whence he could leave the house without Anna's knowing it, without her hearing so much as a footstep. She crossed the passage slowly and leaned against the door, not to listen, but as if she lacked courage to knock. At last, very softly, she gave two quick raps with her knuckles. There was a moment of silence. She would never have dared to knock a second time, already penitent for having ventured to disturb her lord and master. A cold, quiet voice from within inquired, Who is it? It is I, Cesare, she said, bending down as if to send the words through the keyhole. Wait a moment, please. Patiently, with her bejeweled hand on the knob and the train of her pink dressing gown heaped about her feet, she waited. He never allowed her to come in at once when she knocked at his door. He seemed to take a pleasure in prolonging and subduing her impatience. Presently, he opened the door. He was already dressed for the Campo de Marte, in the appropriate costume of a lover of horse racing. Ah, my dear lady he said, bowing with that fine gallantry which he always showed to women. Aren't you dressed yet? And as he spoke, he looked at her with admiring eyes. She was so young and fresh and living, with her beautiful round throat, her flower-like arms issuing from her wide monk's sleeves, and her tiny feet in their black slippers, that he took her hand, drew her to him, and kissed her on the lips. A single kiss, but her eyes lighted softly, and her red lips remained parted. 
He stretched himself in an easy chair near his writing desk and puffed a cigarette. All the solid and simple yet elegant furniture of the big room which he occupied was impregnated with that odor of tobacco which solitary smokers create round themselves like an atmosphere. Anna sat down, balancing herself on the arm of a chair covered with Spanish leather. One of her feet played with the train of her gown. She looked about, marveling as she always did, at the vast room a little bleak with its olive plush, its arms, its bookcase, its handful of books and brown bindings, and here and there a bit of carved ivory or bright-colored necktie, and everywhere the smell of cigarette smoke. His bed was long and narrow, with a headpiece of carved wood. Its coverlet of old brocade fell to the floor in folds, and mixed itself with the antique Smyrna carpets that Cesare Diaz had brought home from a journey in the east. Attached to the brown headpiece, there was a big ivory crucifix, a specimen of the Cinquecento sculpture, yellow with age. The whole room had a certain severe appearance, as if here the gallant man of the world gave himself to solitary and austere reflections, while his conscience took the upper hand and reminded him of the seriousness of life. The big drawers of his writing desk surely contained many deep and strange secrets. Anna had often looked at them with burning, eager eyes, the eyes of one anxious to penetrate the essence of things, but she had never approached them, fearing their mysteries. Only every day, after breakfast, when her husband was away, she had put a bunch of fresh, fragrant flowers in a vase of satsuma whose yellow surface was crossed by threads of gold, and placed them on the dark old desk, which thereby gained a quality of youth and poetry. He treated the flowers with characteristic indifference. Now and then he would wear one of them in his buttonhole. Oftener he seemed unconscious of their existence. For a week at a time, jonquils would follow violets, and roses would take the place of mignonette in the Satsuma vase. But Cesare would not deign to give them a look. This morning, though, he had a tea rosebud in his buttonhole, a slightly faded one that he had plucked from the accustomed nosegay. And Anna smiled at seeing it there. At what time are we going to the races? She asked, remembering the business that had brought her to his room. In about an hour, he answered, looking up from a memorandum book in which he was setting down certain figures with a pencil. You are coming with us, aren't you? Yes, and yet we shall look like a Noah's Ark. Perhaps I'd better go with Giulio on the foreign hand. No, no, come with us. When we are there, you can go where you like. Naturally, he said, making another entry in his notebook. She looked at him with shining eyes, but he continued his calculations and paid her no attention. Only presently he asked, Aren't you going to dress? Yes, yes, she answered softly, and slowly she went away. While her maid was helping her to put on her English costume of nut-colored wool, she was wondering whether her husband would like it. She never dared to ask him what his tastes were in such matters. She tried to divine them. Before dressing, 
she secured round her throat by a chain an antique silver reliquary, which enclosed, however, instead of the relics of a saint, the only love letters that he had ever written to her, two little notes that had given her unspeakable pain when she had received them. And as she moved about her room at her toilet, she cast repeated glances at his portrait, which hung over her writing table. Round her right arm, she wore six little golden bracelets with pearls suspended from them. Engraven upon each bracelet was one letter of his name, Cesare. Her right hand gleamed with many rings set with precious stones, but on her left hand, her wedding ring shone alone. When she had adjusted her veil over her English felt hat, trimmed with swallow's wings, she looked at herself in the glass and hesitated. She was afraid she wouldn't please him. Her dress was too simple. It was an ordinary morning street costume. Suddenly the door opened and Laura appeared. As usual, she wore white, a frock of soft white wool, exquisitely delicate and graceful. Her hat was covered with white feathers that waved with every breath of air. And in her hand, she held a bunch of beautiful, fresh tea roses. Oh, how pretty you are, cried Anna. And who gave you those lovely roses? Chesede. Give me one, give me one. And she put out her hand. She put it into her buttonhole inexpressibly happy to possess a flower that he had brought to the house and presented to her sister. When did you see Cesare? she asked, taking up her purse, across which Anna Diaz was stamped, and her sunshade. I haven't seen him. He sent these flowers to my room. How kind he is. Very kind, repeated her sister like an echo. They went into the drawing room and waited for Cesare. He came presently, drawing on his gloves. He was somewhat annoyed at having to go to the races with his family. He, who had hitherto always gone as a bachelor, on a friend's foreign hand, or alone in his own phaeton. His bad humor was only partially concealed. Ah, here is the charming Minerva, he cried, perceiving Laura. How smart we are. A proud spring toilet indeed. Good, good. Well, let's be off. Anna hoped for a word from him, too, but she got none. Cesare had seen her dress of nut-colored wool, and he deemed it unworthy of remark. For a moment, all the beauty of the April day was extinguished, and she descended the stairs with heavy steps. But out of doors... The air was full of light and gaiety. The streets were crowded with carriages and with pedestrians. On every balcony there were ladies in light colors with red parasols, and a million scintillating atoms danced in every ray of sunshine. Anna told herself she must bear in patience the consequences of the error she had made in putting on that ugly brown frock. Laura's face was lovely as a rose under her white hat, and Anna rejoiced in her sister's beauty and in the admiring glances that everybody gave her. It's going to be beastly hot, said Cesare as they drove into the Toledo, where a crowd had gathered to watch the procession of carriages. 
The grandstand will be covered. We'll find a good place, said Anna. Oh, I'm going to leave you when we get there, he reminded her. He was determined to put an end to this family scene as soon as he could. I must leave a clear field for Laura's adorers. I give place to them because I am old. Laura smiled. So, Anna, I'll leave you to your maternal duties. I recommend you to keep an especial eye upon Luigi Caracciolo, upon him in particular. What do you mean? Anna asked absently. Nothing, dear. I thought, she began without finishing her sentence. Bows and smiles and words of greeting were reaching them from every side. They passed or overtook numberless people whom they knew, some in carriages, some on foot. Cesare was inwardly mortified by the conjugal exhibition of himself that he was obliged to make and looked with secret envy at his bachelor friends. But his regret was sharpest when a handsome four-in-hand dashed past with Giulio Carafa on the box and the Contessa de la Magna beside him. That dark, vivacious, blue-eyed lady wore a costume of pale yellow silk and a broad straw hat trimmed with cream-colored feathers. She carried a bunch of lilac in her hands, lilac that lives but a single day in our ardent climate and is rich with intoxicating fragrance. All the men on Carafa's coach bowed to Diaz, and the Contessa de la Magna smiled upon him and waved her flowers, and his heart was bitten by a great desire to be there with them instead of here in this stupid domestic party. He was silent, and Anna's eyes filled with tears, for she understood what his silence meant. At the sight of her tears, his irritation increased. Well, what is it? he asked, looking at her with his dominating coldness. Nothing, she said, turning her head away to hide her emotion. That question and answer were equivalent to one of the long and stormy discussions that are usual between husbands and wives. Between them, such discussions never took place. Their life was regulated according to the compact they had made on that moonlit night at Sorrento. She realized now that what had then seemed to her a way of being saved was only a way of dying more slowly. But he had kept his word, and she must keep hers. He had married her, she must not reproach him. Only sometimes her sorrow appeared too plainly, then he never failed to find a word or glance to remind her of her promise. Today, for the thousandth time, he regretted the sacrifice he had made and cursed his generosity. The whole distance from the Toledo to the Campo de Marte was passed in silence. As they approached the Reclusorio, Luigi Caracciolo drove by them with his tandem. He bowed cordially to them. Anna dropped her eyes. Laura smiled upon him. What a handsome fellow, exclaimed Diaz with the sincere admiration of one man of the world for another. Very handsome, said Laura, who was accustomed to speak her girlish mind with sufficient freedom. He pleases you, eh? inquired Cesare with a smile. He pleases me, 
she said with her habitual freedom and her habitual indifference. It's a pity he was never able to take Anna's fancy, Cesare added with enigmatical irony. I hate handsome youths, said Anna proudly. You wouldn't be the impertinent woman you are, my dear, if you didn't hate everything that other people like. We've got a creature of passion in the family, Laura, he said with a frank expression of scorn. Yes, assented the cruel sister. Anna smiled faintly in disdain. Again, the beauty of the day was extinguished for her. The warm April afternoon was like a dark winter's evening. The rose that Laura had given her had fallen to pieces, shedding its petals on the carriage floor. Anna would have liked to gather them up and preserve them. The most she could do, however, was to take a single one that lay in her lap and put it into the opening of her glove against the palm of her hand. At the entrance of the racing grounds, they met the Contessa de la Magna again. She smiled graciously upon Anna and Laura. Anna tried to smile in return. Laura bowed coldly. Don't you like the Contessa de la Magna? asked Cesare as he conducted his wife and sister-in-law to their places in the members' stand. No, said Laura. You're wrong, said he. That may be, but she's antipathetic to me. I like her, said Anna feebly. Cesare found places for them and gave them each an opera glass. Then he stood and said to Anna, You will be all right here? Perfectly. Nothing I can do for you? Nothing. I'll come back for the third race. I'm going now to bet. Goodbye. And he went off with the light step of a liberated man. Anna watched him as he crossed the turf towards the weighing stand. She was surrounded by acquaintances, and they were all talking together. Being a bride, she received a good deal of attention. Diaz was popular, and his popularity reflected itself upon her. Besides, people found her interesting, with her black, passionate eyes, the pure oval of her face, and her fresh, red lips. Luigi Caracciolo came up to where the sisters were seated. Cesare has deserted you he asked jestingly. He's gone to bet. He'll soon come back, said Anna. He's betting with the Contessa de la Magna, suggested Laura with one of those perverse smiles which contrasted so oddly with the purity of her face. Then he'll not come back so soon, said Luigi sitting down. Have you never seen the races before? he asked. No, I have never seen them said Anna. It's a rather tiresome sight, said he, pulling his blonde mustaches. It is interesting to see the people, said Anna. It's the crowd that always gives its interest to a scene, said he with an intonation of profound thought. Laura was looking through her opera glass. There's Cesare, she cried suddenly. Cesare was walking and talking with the beautiful Contessa de la Magna and two other men who walked in front of them occasionally turned and took part in the conversation. As he passed his wife and sister, he looked up and bowed. Anna responded, smiling, but her smile was a forced and weary one. 
Luigi Caracciolo, feigning not to have noticed this incident, said to her, That's a charming dress you're wearing. It's an inspiration. Do you like it? she asked with a thankful look. Yes, I admire these English fashions. I think our women are wrong to go to a horse race dressed as if for a garden party. It's not smart. He took her sunshade and toyed with it, reading the inscription engraved on its silver handle. Entend pour attendre. Wait to win. Is that your motto? He inquired. Yes. Have you never had another? Never. It is a wise one, he remarked. It's a fact that everything comes at last to those who know how to wait. Alas, not everything, not everything, she murmured sadly. There was a burst of applause from the multitude. The second race was over, and the favorite had won, a Naples-bred horse. People crowded about the bookmarkers to receive the value of their bets. Perhaps Cesare has won, said Laura. He was always talking about Amarilli. Cesare always wins, said Luigi. He is not named Cesare for nothing, said Anna proudly. And just like the great Julius, all his victories were won after he had turned 40, especially those in Germany. But Anna did not hear this malicious pleasantry. She was thinking of other things. By and by, her husband came to her. Are you enjoying it, Anna? He asked. Yes, I am enjoying it. And you, Laura? Oh, immensely, she answered coldly. Would you like to see the weighing ground? Yes, she said, taking her shawl and her sunshade. I can't take you, said Cesare to his wife, who was gazing imploringly at him. We should look ridiculous. But she did not appear resigned. We should be ridiculous, he repeated imperiously. Thank goodness we're not perpetually on our wedding journey. They went away, leaving her with a pain in her heart which she felt was killing her. She half-closed her eyes, and only one idea was clear in the sorrowful confusion of her mind. That her husband was right. She had broken their agreement. She had promised never to entreat him, never to reproach him. It was weak and wicked of her, she told herself, to have consented to such an agreement, a compact by which her love, her pride, and her dignity were alike bound to suffer. She had made another great mistake when she did that, and this time an irreparable mistake. Ah, you are alone? said Luigi Caracciolo, coming up again. Alone. Something is troubling you. What is it? I am bored, and a person who is bored bores others. Let us bore ourselves together, Signora Diaz. That will be diverting. I have always wished to bore myself with you, you know. She shook her head to forbid his referring to the past. Ah, you won't consent? You are very cruel. She put her opera glass to her eyes and looked off across the course. If you're going to treat me as badly as this, you'd better send me away, he said with some feeling. The stand is free to all the world, she answered, 
tormented by the thought that if her husband should come back, he might imagine that she was glad to talk with Caracciolo. You are a Domedian in women's clothes, he cried. Ah, you women, when you don't like a man, you destroy him straightway. She did not hear him, or hearing she did not understand. You are too high for me, he went on. To descend to my level would be impossible for you, and unworthy of you. It's equally impossible for me to rise to yours. You are quite mistaken. I am anything rather than a superior being. I'm a human, earthly woman, like all the others, more than others. Then why do you suffer? Because love is very bitter. What love? All love. It is bitterer than aloes, bitterer than gall, bitter in life and in death. There was another outburst of applause, and the crowd began to move. The races of the first day were over. Anna looked for her husband. He appeared presently, with Laura on his arm. You leave your wife to the most melancholy solitude, said Caracciolo, laughing. I was sure you would keep her company. You are such a true friend to me, laughed Cesare. Caracciolo gave his arm to Anna. In any case, it wasn't to render you a service, said Luigi. I know your fidelity, said Diaz. You are my master. Neither of the ladies spoke. Anna gave herself up to the happiness of having recovered her husband, of going away with him, of taking him home. He seemed excited and pleased, as if he had enjoyed the events of the afternoon without stopping to analyze their frivolity and emptiness. He had amused himself in his usual way, forgetting for the moment the subtle but constant annoyance of his marriage. He was merry, and he showed his merriment by joking with Caracciolo, with Laura, even with his wife. Anna was very happy. The long day had tired her, but now she felt the warmth and comfort of his presence, and that compensated her for her hours of abandonment. They had some difficulty finding their carriage, but Cesare was not impatient. Caracciolo, meanwhile, was looking for his own tranquilly, never for a moment neglecting his chivalric duties. When their carriage was discovered, the two men helped the ladies into it, and Cesare, standing beside it, deposed of their shawls and their opera glasses with the carefulness of a model husband, at the same time exchanging a passing word or two with Caracciolo. Suddenly, Cesare closed the carriage door and said to the coachman, Home. Aren't you coming with us? Anna asked in a low voice. No, there's a place for me on Giulio Carafa's foreign hand. I shall get to Naples sooner than you will. The foreign hand can go outside the line. Foreign hands are very amusing, said Caracciolo, shaking hands with the two women. Shall we have a late dinner? asked Anna. Don't wait dinner for me. I'm going to dine at the Contessa de la Magna's with Giulio Carafa and Marco Pagliano. Very well, said Anna. She watched Cesare and Luigi as they moved away, puffing their cigarettes. Then she said to the coachman, Drive home. During the long drive, the sisters scarcely spoke. 
they were accustomed to respect each other's hours of silence. A soft breeze was blowing from the north. They were both a little pale. Perhaps it was the spectacle of the return from the Campo di Marte which had made them thoughtful. The many carriages, full of people who bore on their faces the signs of happiness due to a fine day of sunshine passed in the open air amid the thousand flattering coquetteries of love and fancy, the beautiful women wrapped in their cloaks, the sort of spiritual intoxication that glowed in the eyes of everybody. The streets were lined by an immense crowd of shopkeepers and working people, who made a holiday pleasure of watching the stream of carriages, and another crowd looked down from the balconies of the houses. Presently, Anna leaned forward and took her shawl and wrapped it round her shoulders. "'Are you cold?' asked Laura, helping her. "'Yes.' Laura also put on her shawl. She, too, was cold." Luigi Caracciolo's tandem passed them. Anna did not see him. Laura bowed. When they had reached the Piazza San Ferdinando, Anna asked, Would you like to drive about a little? No, let us go home. And when they were in the house, We must go in to dinner, Laura said. I'm not going to dine. I have a headache, said Anna. At last she was alone. In her own room, she threw aside her hat and veil, her sunshade, her purse, her pocket handkerchief. She fell into an armchair and was shaken by a storm of sobs and tears. From above her little writing table, Cesare's portrait seemed to smile upon the flowers that were placed under it. She raised her eyes and looked at his beautiful and noble face, which appeared to glow with love and life. A great impulse of passion rose in her heart. She took the portrait and kissed it and bathed it in her tears, murmuring, My love, my love, why do you treat me like this? Ah, oh, I can only love you, love you, and you are killing me. Hours passed unnoticed by her. Someone came to the door and asked whether she wished for a lamp. She answered, No. By and by, she saw a white figure standing before her. She recognized Laura, and she saw that Laura was weeping. She had never seen her weep before. You are crying. What are you crying for? she asked. Yes, answered Laura vaguely with a gesture. And they wept together. End of Part 2, Chapter 1